welcome to the second episode of the Open Universe podcast. And my gosh, is it a surprise to see that there's someone actually listening to this episode. Uh, as always, I'm Sanak and I'm joined here by Anna. Hi, everyone. Uh, how are you doing, Anna? How's, how's, uh, how's everything going at your end? I'm pretty excited to be recording this episode. <laughs> what's, uh, what's got you uh, so especially excited about it? Well, the topic, of course. Like, who wouldn't want to hear about the ultimate fate of the universe? Yeah. Speak about the clickbaity titles. Yeah, if, if, you, if you thought the, the last episode wasn't clickbaity enough, talking about um, finding new life and uh, new planets, then surely the ultimate fate of whether the universe will cool off and die or burn up and well, go die, in flames. <laughs> go up in flames. Uh, surely has to uh, take the cake. So what's quite nice, I think, is that this time the clickbait isn't so much on our part because it is literally the title of the paper, which is The Possible Ultimate Fate of the Universe by Jamal Nasrul Islam, who was a Bangladeshi astronomer. And quite coincidentally, it was Sonek who chose the paper. So it was well chosen to not make us do a lot of extra work, but actually have this clickbaity title all on its own. So today, as the title of this episode suggests, is going to be a discussion on what the ultimate fate of the universe will be. And when I say ultimate fate, I mean really on timescales that extend far beyond anything that will be relevant to us as human beings on Earth, probably relevant to anything resembling the solar system and it being around. And the idea of the discussion will be to focus, as last time, on a specific paper that we dug up and quite how we got to that we'll talk about in a, in a second, I suppose, which basically ruminates on the possible end states of the cosmos that we live in based on certain conditions that need to be satisfied with regards to what the content of the universe is, what are the kinds of forces that exist, and how the interplay between the forces in our universe and the contents that make up the universe can actually lead to different sort of circumstances for the evolution of galaxies, of stars, and so on and so forth, and how all of these combine towards putting us on very different possible paths for what the universe would look like, not just in a billion years time or two billion years time, but several billion, billion years. What is interesting is that this idea of the universe changing and actually having something like the beginning at the end was not always around. Initially, yeah. back in the olden days, when people looked at the night sky, the only objects they could see were the ones close to us in the solar system. So the sun, the moon, the planets... Maybe sometimes they saw a comet, but the stars, they were always on the same spot. So that gave this idea of a cosmological model that is static, that is not changing in time, or in the scientific name was the, the steady state universe. Yeah. However, I think now the Big Bang is a household name, so and was probably even before the TV show. <laughs> so <laughs> um, They're paying so you that, to say that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, they are not. <laughs> so that means if the universe had a beginning, it, is, it ha hasn't always been the same. It's been changing. So it is actually natural to ask where, what is going to happen in the future. But then before we get to the, to the future uh, of the universe, it might be useful to kind of go over why we think it actually is changing. So 
So I do want to tell us about that. So I guess the most convincing first lines of evidence in favor of a universe that was actually changing or growing in size takes us back to perhaps the early part of the 20th century, specifically with the measurements of people like Vesto Slipher and Edwin Hubble. Edwin Hubble, of course, will be a name that is familiar to many people because the famous Hubble Space Telescope is named in his honor. And the observations of these two uh, folks back in the early 1900s was that if you essentially measure how fast galaxies are moving in the universe, so by this point, we've kind of established that there are actually these entities that exist beyond the realms of our solar system, island universes of their own right, as they were once named and labeled. So you yeah, can actually make was, a, sorry. And that was a, a, a big discovery that actually kind of the cities of stars exist, like separate cities of stars exist. That is not all in our neighborhood. So yeah, exactly. Like a, a big shift and, uh, in kind of our understanding of the universe. Yeah. So as instruments started to become more and more sophisticated at the time, we started being able to do very important types of computations regarding these distant galaxies. Chiefly amongst them were the ability to actually measure the distance to that particular object and also the speed or the velocity with which these objects were moving. And one of the most remarkable observations that were made by the likes of Hubble and Slipher was that on a statistical level, pretty much all the galaxies that we could see surrounding us seemed to be moving away in that their motions were directed away from the sort of pointing away from us in some sense. Do you think they were a little bit worried that like everyone seems to be sort of running away from us when they first made the measurement? I mean, I'm used to that feeling of people running away from me anyway. So I don't know, maybe they, well, that's a separate story. I, <laughs> I, I don't know, but I mean, I'm sure this must have been quite a remarkable observation uh, or, or quite a remarkable feeling for them to have made this observation mm. that you know you would think that if gravity is the the force that binds the universe gravity has this effect of you know holding things together and you know keeping things back yeah. and forming it's always uh, attracting always attracting yeah, and yet yeah. what we see or what what they saw was that broadly this universe that we live in was primarily made of things that seem to be constantly social distancing in some sense <laughs> at an increasing exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so this gave rise to the idea that perhaps it isn't true that the state of our universe today is exactly how it was many millions or billions of years ago. And if indeed things are constantly moving away as we see them today, then perhaps this has always been the case, which would then mean that the universe has always actually been expanding. But at some point in time, they have to have been closer, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of like, you know, if you, if you rewind the videotape, then things that are moving away sometime in the past were all close together. Mm -hmm. And of yeah. course, this idea that everything was once all together in a tiny, almost infinitely small uh, volume and has then resulted in things actually moving apart and getting bigger and bigger is what we end up labeling the Big Bang, after all. That is a good piece of advertising. For what, the TV show now again? No, no, just for the, for the name, for the beginning of the universe, the Big Bang. The Big Bang, yeah. It's... Uh, I, th I think it's a, it's, it's a name that a lot of people have gripes against because it gives this onomatopoeic feeling to the name that there was indeed this big explosion, explosion. that yeah. took place. And I think uh, that 
that perhaps is somewhat a, a misleading interpretation. But anyway, that's 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 a subject for maybe another day. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting, as as Anna said, is that even after these initial observations in the early part of the 20th century, there were still groups of detractors, amongst them being very eminent and well-established scientists, who still maintained this idea of a steady-state theory. And I think this is partly like a, a, you know, a sociological outcome that the thought that you know, the universe is constantly growing and it sort of originated from an infinitely small clump of material or matter, and who knows what that is. It, it is a very paradigm-shifting thought at some level, yeah. isn't it? And I can, I, can, I can appreciate why, you know, with just evidence stemming from the motions of a, a few galaxies mm-hmm. surrounding us might not have been enough to convince okay. the scientific community that, you know, a handful of galaxies is enough to change several centuries worth of scientific thinking. But then in 1965, of course, came the nail in the coffin for the steady state theory. And maybe, Anna, you could tell us about um, exactly what happened then. Yeah, I can, I can take over. So yeah, a very surprising discovery was made when astronomers pointed basically radio dishes, kind of satellite <laughs> radio dishes, uh, towards the sky. And they detected this hum on fairly low frequencies. And this is not at all what what was expected. Ended up being sort of this persistent noise that was coming from everywhere, wherever you pointed it in the sky, there was this constant background level of noise. And I think, again, took a lot of courage is to interpret this as this relic radiation from this early universe shortly after the Big Bang. This radiation was unexpected, in, or it would be unexpected in the steady state universe, because then you would need like some source of it, like where is it coming from? But in this expanding model of the universe, there is a natural explanation, because if the universe was once so dense that all of the galaxy that not, now we see were like part of some primordial soup, at some point, some radiation managed to escape. And this is sort of the relic of that radiation that we see today. However, with time, as the universe was expanding, the wavelength of that radiation was expanding as well. So since we were able to measure the the wavelength and it was so long, we could actually estimate that the universe has been expanding for a really, really long time. And even today, our most precise measurement of the age of the universe comes from modeling this background radiation from shortly after the Big Bang called a cosmic microwave background. So since this expanding universe has such a natural explanation for this radiation and the steady state did not at all, I think this shifted the perception of the scientific community into this model where the, the universe did have a beginning, and then asking about the end of the universe became a legit question. And what sort of the outcome of this expansion then depended on, on exactly what the universe is made of. I th- yeah, this, this story about the discovery of this microwave background radiation is, I think, one of my favorite examples of serendipitous discoveries in the field of cosmology and astronomy, because, you know, this holy grail for this idea of a universe with a big bang is something that physicists had been looking for for a long time 
at least uh, the observational mm-hmm. evidence for it, but it was discovered by right. engineers in the end at Bell Laboratories who were doing something completely different. Yeah, weren't they? They were trying to to make like radio contact like across the the globe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they were basically as the motive of the uh, Bell Laboratories was to you know devise new ways yeah. of developing communications equipment and you know radio frequencies was something mm-hmm. that they were playing with at the time. I, I think we should actually reserve a special episode just talking about yeah. the discovery of the microwave background radiation and how we actually have this concrete evidence mm-hmm. that the universe had a finite beginning and is constantly expanding mm-hmm. as a sort of you know dedicated thing. Yeah, this might like this might be a nice topic for a forthcoming episode, mm-hmm. I think. So yeah. let's let's save the 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 juicy details of the story for, for the next time. And so of course the fate of the universe, the ultimate fate of the universe, at least in some parts is determined but what the universe is made of we think that this explosion at the beginning sort of injected some energy into the the space-time that is now expanding this expansion would be sort of combated by the gravity of all the stars planets galaxies that, that we see all around us because as we mentioned earlier gravity is always an attractive force so it tries to keep the uh, those galaxies from running away from us and then it really becomes the question of balance between that uh, initial kind of energy that uh, started the expansion of the universe and this gravitational pull of all of the matter in the universe of what is going to happen at the end which which one is going to win yeah. so actually that ties into the title of this episode because it turns out that this competition between gravity and expansion and exactly which side of the coin is victorious and by how much actually <laughs> results in very different outcomes for what the universe ends up looking like in 10 to the 100 years time or something like that. Yeah. And what's quite neat is that it's not only this competition between gravity and expansion that has implications for what the outcome of the universe is, but it's also, in fact, what the shape of the universe is that has repercussions for exactly these things. So we think that broadly, the fates of our universe can be broken down into three different classes, which essentially categorize the shape of the universe as being either a closed universe, in which case you can think of the surface of space and time as resembling something like that of a sphere, so really a sort of curved ball in some sense. There's a case of an open universe, which is where the shape of space-time resembles something like the saddle of a horse, which... I have to admit, it's so difficult to imagine this because the universe we think of is like three-dimensional. So how do you imagine that as being like a sort of two-dimensional horse saddle? It's, yeah, it's I, kind of abstract. It is pretty abstract. And I think one of the big things about this idea of the shape of the universe is really sort of detaching yourself from the scales that the shape is actually relevant to. So mm. it's really a matter of kind of zooming all the way out and seeing the universe as a holistic piece and determining the shape of space and time that way. So one way by which people try and explain the difference between, say, a closed universe or an open universe or the third possibility, which is the flat universe, which turns out to be the situation that we think we find ourselves in today, or at least relevant to our is universe. Is this the one when the coin lands on the edge? It's a, <laughs> exactly, yeah, something like that. So the primary difference is kind of like how you think the laws of geometry would work in such a 
in such a universe. So, you know, in high school, we've all studied, uh, well, most of us have studied, I guess, things like Pythagoras' theorem, and we've learned about triangles and how the three angles of a triangle always add up to 180 degrees. And really the difference between a closed universe, an open universe, and a flat universe is just a matter of to what extent these standard laws of geometry that we've studied uh, actually apply. So a flat universe is one where geometry behaves exactly like how we think a high school geometry mm-hmm. you know, classes would have taught us, that if you take three different points on space on very large scales and you were to draw a triangle out of those and you added up the angles, they would always add up to 180 degrees. Or if you had two parallel lines, those parallel lines would continue to be parallel and never meet. In a closed universe and an open universe, neither of these two situations is applicable. So for example, in a closed universe, if you were to actually join up three points in space, because now the curvature of space and time is rounded like the surface of a ball, it actually turns out that if you were to add up the angles in this triangle on the surface mm-hmm. of a sphere or the surface of a ball, actually ends up exceeding 180 degrees. So that's like pretty cool that, uh, that still it might have a connection to, to sort of this real life experience we, because we can take, say, a balloon and draw three points on it and measure the angles and then turn, like actually show that it's the sum up to, to more than 180 degrees, which is... Exactly. Okay. Not exactly the same as, as doing it in, in 3D. No, but, uh, but you know... It comes a little bit the, close to it. The analogy of the balloon is actually quite good because, you know, another test you could do there is to just try and draw what you think are two parallel lines on the surface of the balloon. And what you find is that unlike if you just had a sheet of paper where these or a flat universe, in other words, where these lines would just sort of continue to extend indefinitely without meeting, because of the curvature of this balloon or the closed universe, two lines that started off parallel will eventually always meet. So what it means is that if you and I, Anna, for example, lived in a closed universe, and we both set off at parts that were parallel, or we thought were parallel to one another, in our closed universe, we would always find some point in the future where our parts cross again, which would never happen in a flat universe. Isn't that amazing? Oh, I like this. Yeah. And how soon we meet, does that depend on sort of how curved the universe is? Exactly. And how curved the universe is, is this idea of the competition between gravity and expansion. So Mm. if our universe has a lot of matter or a lot of gravitational sources, then of course, it is much easier for the universe to halt the expansion and therefore round everything up and then bring everything together. And the curvature of space and time is therefore more pronounced. Yeah, so we we may not meet anytime soon in our office, but... If the universe were closed, we would be guaranteed someday. Exactly. Actually. Precisely, yeah. But what this also means is that if at some point gravity becomes so dominant over the expansion, then clearly there'll be some point in the future where things, even in an expanding universe, will eventually stop expanding and then be sort of halted by gravity and then brought back. And eventually this will be sort of catastrophic in nature So much so that the universe will collapse in on itself into what's known as a big crunch. So that is actually one of the possible fates of the universe. So a universe in which matter completely or gravity completely dominates the expansion of the universe, the final state will be something that basically collapses in on itself 
into basically a singularity in a similar sort of sense to what the universe was like in its past. It's not much of a prospect, right? <laughs> Uh, no, it's, <laughs> I don't it's know. not it's great. Just like, yeah. It's, yeah. It's not, it's not the best. <laughs> I can, I can understand like the, uh, the motivation behind the steady state universe. It was just kind of like nice to think of like us, you know, going on. Yeah. Just, just as it is. Well, to end up in a crunch. If, if you, if you thought the big crunch was a disappointing way to go, I think the fate in an open universe is even worse. In a closed universe, we said that these, you know, the triangle, the angles in a triangle would all add up to be somewhat greater than 180 degrees. In an open universe, they actually add up to being less than 180 degrees because the universe is sort of like a saddle shape and almost looks like a hyperbola if you've ever seen one of these graphs in a, in a mathematical sense. And so in these um, open universes, what ends up happening is that the universe's expansion actually constantly dominates over the gravity. And so even if there is some point in the past where maybe the influence of gravity and the influence of expansion are comparable, the expansion always wins out at the end. So what will happen is that eventually there will be no more resistance to the expansion and everything that was bound together by gravity will eventually be ripped apart. I'm not liking this uh, alternative either, I have to say. And this actually brings us now to the paper we are discussing today because it builds on the observation or the finding that the universe is open. And so this is an observation made in 1975 and it was still somewhat uncertain whether that was actually the case. It was just some evidence presented that the universe might actually be open. But I think as recently as uh, late 90s, it was, it was not a given. But still, uh, Jamal Islam decided to think through what would the evolution of the universe on very, very long time scales look like if the universe was open. But before we, we go into the paper itself, I think it's it'll be interesting to to hear a little bit about the author himself because I was struck by by the courage to to ask this sort of question and it was like when this observation was so new it was very uncertain so it really sounded like there was a certain amount of courage to to say okay well this might not ever be but I'm still curious to see what would happen even if, if the observation was uncertain, to consider what the possible implications would be if the observation was affirmed at some point in the future. So since it was Sonak, and you probably would have expected that, that it was his choice of a paper that was titled The Possible Ultimate Fate of the Universe. So how did you decide to, on the paper? Yeah, I've got to say the story behind my uh, finding this paper is not very uh, romantic at all. So I basically just searched Google for like list of cosmologists. And <laughs> I was just interested to see whose names would pop up. And I was struck by the fact that there was basically just a handful of names I didn't recognize. And one mm -hmm. of them just happened to be the author of this particular paper, Jamal Nasrul Islam, who was a physicist and astronomer and actually a literary figure uh, at some point as well. Really? Uh, yeah. So wow. he's uh, also written a variety of books. 
talking about art and literature and the nature of language and so on, in addition to his astronomical musing. So I guess that would explain why he started his paper with a couple of uh, lines from a poem by Percy Shelley. Yeah, Anna, do you want to just uh, say what those lines are? Yeah, I can pull up the paper. I thought that was also very romantic mm -hmm. and definitely something we don't see in papers these days. But if anything comes out of this episode, I hope it is more and at least uh, more people and definitely Sonak and myself, including some appropriate lines of uh, <laughs> uh, poetic lines in our, our future papers. So the lines are, the stars may dissolve and the fountain of light may sink into ne'er-ending chaos and night. Nice. How about that? That's pretty good. And yeah. as it turns out, these uh, these lines have not just been thrown in for some kind of romantic muse, but it is actually very intimately linked with the actual uh, scientific content of what Jamal Islam ends up discussing in this paper. And one of the things I found quite interesting reading up about him was that you know his sort of Wikipedia page doesn't go into a huge amount of detail about him as a character, say for maybe factual bits, which is perhaps what an encyclopedia should be about anyway. But um, <laughs> but I was, I was reading a number of obituaries and memorials written in his honor by students of his, and they all sort of seem to refer to him as this almost mythical being in, in this academic context of Bangladesh specifically. And his long-lasting legacy is the fact that he established what's known as the Research Center for Mathematical and Physical Sciences in Bangladesh, which mm -hmm. was really quite a standard bearer for rigorous investigation in the mathematical and physical causes. I see in the affiliation of Jamal Islam when he wrote this paper that he was a member of the Department of Applied Mathematics and Astronomy at the University College in Cardiff. So this I think even by today's standards is, a, is an unusual combination and it looks like it was a unique kind of person that could have blended those two disciplines or just math and science in general. So how unique was this at the time? I think it must have been at least largely influenced by his time as a graduate student at Cambridge because I understand he was quite close to Stephen Hawking and you know in some of the pieces I've read on the internet about Jamal Islam. They seem to refer to him and Hawking as being roommates. And I don't know to what extent that is actually true, but I suspect Hawking, who was very much invested in similar types mm -hmm. of questions to the one uh, posed in this paper, was certainly a big proponent of blending in mm -hmm. apply, you know, the concepts of rigorous mathematics with the physical sciences. And so I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you know, this is maybe where some of those intentions were fostered. And of course, Jamal Islam then eventually went on to go back to his home country to set up what was then known as the Research Center for Mathematical and Physical Sciences at the University of Chittagong. That center has since been renamed in honor of Jamal Islam himself. And what's also interesting is that the development of this research center actually predates the Center for Mathematical mm -hmm. Sciences at Cambridge, which, of course, Hawk, uh, Stephen Hawking himself was, I guess, the pioneering founder for. Oh. It's kind of nice to have a, this kind of cycle completed that the, maybe the idea was born in Cambridge and then it was, came to fruition in Bangladesh and then came back in this similar uh, center being uh, founded in Cambridge again. 
Exactly. Yeah, I, I remember reading in one of the obituaries written about Jamal Islam that the ultimate marker for a scientist's legacy is kind of the institutions mm-hmm. and the people you influence who are there are living long after you're gone. And I think the development of research centers like this is really a great legacy to leave behind in your in your home country. Yeah, right? that's something to aspire to. There are many things I really like about this paper, and one of them is how it sort of starts from objects that we are familiar with, and then asks what happens to them. So what we know of, what we see now, are the planets, the stars, and we kind of expect that the stars will will run out of fuel. So we know that they won't last forever. And this is sort of the first change that is going to happen. And for for our own sun is coming in about 5 billion years. So still a lot of time (laughs) in front of us. But this is another thing I like about this paper. It kind of says like, well, this is just the first step in our long journey to understand the ultimate fate of the universe. And so... What it says is what is going to become of all the different objects that we know in the universe. So the planets, asteroids, gas, this is going to, to remain like, like they are for some time to come. But the stars that are now being fueled by the, by the gas that is being burned inside their cores, at some point they will run out of that gas. And then what becomes out of the stars depends on their current mass. So the most massive stars will become black holes, the less massive stars will become neutron stars, and the least massive stars, like our sun, will become white dwarfs. And so those are then supposed to be very, very different looking environments for for planets like the Earth, but they're going to stick around for a little while, at least, uh, going on as, as they are now, orbiting in a galaxy on their own, but this won't last forever either, which is sort of the next step in our kind of chain of uh, different processes. Facial events. (laughs) Facial (laughs) events, exactly. Yeah, and so I'm always kind of uh, picturing it as like, you know, several billion years from now, our galaxy is just this kind of large space of black holes just kind of freely floating around like in a beehive yeah. so to speak there and won't be much light to speak of that that's true even though certainly not white yeah. dwarfs and yeah neutron stars uh, uh, still emit light the the one that we see now they're all constantly dimming because they don't really have the energy source or so everything is going to get like a lot darker yeah and speaking of energy actually i mean you know we don't typically think of black holes or black holes that are moving around as typically being composed of energy because since the, the name black hole kind of evokes feelings of the absence mm-hmm. of really anything that we think of as being normal. But in fact, something rather curious happens to black holes when they're floating around in space. So if you were to imagine that we had just a pair of black holes that were separated at some you know very large distance, the mutual gravity of these two objects will actually eventually start causing them to almost become part of a dual orbital structure, much like we see in the case of planets moving around the sun, for example. They get sort of bound in some kind of mutual orbit. And over time, what happens is that as these black holes continue to swirl around one another in almost a cosmic dance, if you want to call it that, 
what eventually happens is that the spiraling motion of the black holes actually causes them to expend a lot of energy. And this energy is typically manifest in the form of the actual structure of space and time actually being perturbed as these black holes continue to orbit one another. So this energy that is given off as black holes are orbiting around is known as gravitational radiation. And gravitational radiation or gravitational waves, which is these ripples in space and time that are liberated during the spiraling motion of black holes, is of course something that was detected very recently by us here on Earth only a couple of years ago now. And you know, this was a prediction that was made by Einstein again back in the early 20th century. It took about 100 years for us to eventually measure and detect it and show that this truly does happen in the real universe. And as this radiation is given off, the black holes start to spiral in towards one another. And this happens because they, of course, lose energy and therefore lose their ability to overcome their mutual gravitational attraction. And I think it's kind of quite visionary of this paper to, to talk about talk about this process before it was ever detected, while it was still just um, hypothesized as, as uh, um, something that would happen in uh, Einstein's theory of gravity. And, yeah. and the reason it was detected now is in this very special configuration where like those system of two bodies of two black holes was already very close together. So it only, only had taken the entire history of the universe to bring them close together <laughs> because it is so slow yeah. so that we only now are, are managing to to detect the two black holes merging with each other but what we are talking about or what Jamal was talking about here is like this process happening on on the scale of an entire galaxy which is just quite visionary truly yeah and of course, by virtue of it being on the scale of the entire galaxy now and not just a close pair, it means that the timescales that are actually required for these black holes to sort of come together, merge and form an even bigger black hole or a super black <laughs> hole, if you want to call it that, is even longer. So the numbers here are really quite remarkable, actually. Yeah. And it kind of depends a little bit on how massive the galaxy is, of course. So for spiral galaxies, such as uh, the Milky Way, the amount of time that it would take for gravitational radiation to actually merge everything together and form this super gigantic black hole is of the order of 10 to the power of 29 years. Okay, yeah. So that is one followed by 29 <laughs> zeros years. So that's a long time. Yeah. Um, and well, <laughs> well beyond the age of the universe by many, many billions of times yeah. over. And it doesn't just end there because for the so-called elliptical galaxies, which are even more massive and are amongst the most massive entities in our universe, the gravitational radiation timescale, or this timescale for everything to merge together and form the super gigantic black hole, is 100 times greater. So it's 10 to the power of 31 years now. So let's try and imagine what's happening. So as Anna said, we have stars that have lost their fuel and have formed tiny black holes. And the only kind of radiation that is left over in the universe is in the form of the few neutron stars mm -hmm. and white dwarfs that are still floating around. And all of these entities then eventually start coming together in the form of basically the in-spiraling motion due to the liberation of gravitational radiation. And it takes around 10 to the power of 31 years for this process to complete and basically create a universe made up of super gigantic black holes. Pretty haunting thought. It is. And it's, 
I think just the sheer scale of how long this uh, process is going to last, that is hard to imagine. I mean, I, when, I, when I talk to people who aren't astronomers, they always remark about like how numbers and quantities that we take for granted are actually, you know, mm-hmm. really enormous numbers. But I think even for astronomers like ourselves, the timescales mm-hmm. of interest here are just mind-boggling, really. I mean, yeah. I, I, I mean, a billion is hard enough to imagine. A billion years is hard enough to imagine. You know, 10 billion years is hard enough to imagine. But 10 to the power of 30 years is like 21 zeros added to a billion, <laughs> right? So that is many, many uh, more layers of mind-boggling timescales than anything that we could uh, potentially imagine. But what the universe ends up at this stage is just this like, weird jungle of black holes kind of swarming around in what is presumably a pretty dark and pretty scary place to be over for. Yeah. Well, but I guess that's only true if you are thinking about photons. I guess now that we have this capability of listening to the universe and capturing the gravitational waves, there there may be a lot going on that way since everything is yeah. sort of starting to come together. Maybe it's just the, the matter of perspective where, where the things are happening. That's a good point. I mean, if you had a way to translate between these ripples and the space-time that have been caused as all of these billions of objects are spiraling towards one another and converted into sound waves, the universe is probably humming along and singing in a... Like a you know like grand operas. choir, yeah, like like a, like an opera really at this time, uh, but just through the guise of gravity than than sound, yeah. Yeah, so I guess yeah, that's like you could imagine as um, like bats having a good time or so. <laughs> yes, the the one uh, unfortunate bat that is around to uh, experience all this take place at photo fair. But I think the even more amazing thing at some level is that this universe of super gigantic black holes mm-hmm. won't actually last around forever. Yeah, that is a remarkable step that like the author was like, oh, well, this is still just one step along our journey to the end of the universe. So... So what comes next? <laughs> I mean, by this point, I'd already started to mentally fatigue. And then we went from one hypothetical physical phenomenon, this idea of gravitational radiation, which hadn't been confirmed, to another, which is uh, now, I guess, a shout out to his good friend, uh, Stephen Hawking, <laughs> where he said that, well, these black holes that currently make up the majority of the population of the universe won't actually last around forever because even black holes will eventually one day die off. And the manner in which they die off is through a phenomenon that is named the Hawking radiation, which is essentially the process by which black holes will eventually evaporate because of the constant creation and destruction of particles around the boundaries of black holes that leads to energy in the form of photons being generated and liberated away. And as these photons are released from the edges of black holes, we see a glow around the black hole, which is this radiation, which looks kind of like a dim ring. And eventually over the timescale of several billions and billions and billions of years will cause these black holes to actually die off. And I should say that the Hawking radiation is something that Stephen Hawking predicted would be manifest and and, and real in our universe, but not something that we have detected yet. Yeah, and it's partly because it is it's such a long process. Uh, like to to measure the the decrease in in mass of black hole, we'd have to wait for a long time. And yeah. I found it really curious that that still our 
brave author did not like stop of just mentioning that like eventually they will evaporate. They he actually calculated how long it would take, and it uh-huh. turns out it's something like ten to the hundred years, which is a Google of years. So it's ten to the hundred years for a black hole the size of a galaxy yeah. to evaporate. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's a. Uh, a long way. Yeah, if you thought that like the 10 to the 30 is mind-boggling, well, you now just have to add another 70 zeros to that number. We'll probably not make it that far. However, the Earth should, and planets like the Earth Mm. should, and Jamal, of course, considered what happens to to the planets and the gas that, that remains behind us. And then he ultimately says, now going back to the better established physics really that all of the elements are unstable on some time scales so that all of the elements that make up the earth the, the carbon the silicon the oxygen all of that should be slowly decaying through radioactive decay until everything becomes iron which is the most stable element but even iron will decay it will just take even longer time scale. <laughs> so for iron to decay it will take 10 to the power of 500 years. So what does that even mean? Like, I, <laughs> is this an unfathomable amount of time? It really is. But what, what's quite interesting, though, is that, you know, imagine if there was some, somehow there was some organism still on Earth, right? Mm-hmm. And you would think that, okay, if oxygen and nitrogen and carbon and all these things that we think life depends on have decayed away, then of course, living organisms have nothing to know live on but if there's some weird new species that forms that is entirely iron sufficient then it can actually last a lot longer than anything else that is uh, you know ever been around so 10 to the 500 years is a pretty long lifespan that's true and i mean it even sort of survives the galaxies like the galaxies like those black holes they should evaporate and uh in only 10 to the 100 years and like we have like another (laughs) power of 400 to to outlive them so a only iron-based life form will actually be able to witness (laughs) the galaxies in our universe which have now turned into gigantic black holes basically evaporating before its eyes or whatever it has i don't know (laughs) i don't know if eyes are the right thing but that's that's a that's a creepy thought yeah however i i do like a a line in the paper that sort of hints at that uh it says in an attempt to survive in such conditions life may take forms which would be quite weird by our standards so sure yeah like it would be weird but as we were talking about it might be possible probably possible (laughs) So, okay, so this is after iron decays, this is basically the end state of the universe. And the paper says it is thus arguable that asymptotically, the universe will consist only of stray protons, electrons, neutrinos, and photons. Wow, so it's basically like what it was around the Big Bang in that case, right? So we've basically gone in a circle. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Or a sphere, or whatever to- it is, I don't know. Or a saddle. <laughs> a saddle. Yeah, or I guess saddle. <laughs> it's a saddle. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. It's just like the difference is that, that these truly are stray because yeah. the, the universe is becoming so empty. So yeah. the, the content is the same. It's just like everything is so far so away far apart, from each yeah. other. I, I, I don't know about you, Anna, but like as I was, as I was reading 
the paper, I just like constantly had a smile on my face reading these numbers and the almost sort of carefree <laughs> attitude with which like, yeah, so this galaxy will turn into a black hole and these black holes will all merge to form a, you know, a super black hole and so on. And it just seems so, such a refreshing discourse at some level that mm-hmm. there was no there was no compromise being made on the part of uh, Jamal Islam in discussing these ideas which are well beyond you know, the realms of observation or detection at least as far as our technology at present extends but it was it was all kind of discussed in an almost matter of fact way ra- rather than mm-hmm. like this is what the physics is so of course this is what is going to happen yeah so it is yes. not blind faith but it's really a faith in the robust theory that you think is a, describing our universe and says that well mm-hmm. if this is correct then this has to be the natural state of conclusions and i i thought that it was a very sort of liberating feeling reading this that wow there was this time where you could just write about things that you thought were <laughs> mysterious and exotic and you know really sort of taps into the big questions uh, of our existence without having to worry about oh what will people think about my ideas or mm. is this paper going to reflect badly upon me when i have to apply for my next grant i don't know how you felt <laughs> about it Anna. i found it also quite almost sassy in the <laughs> in tone because as you say it it kind of took you know the observation open universe okay Let's take that. Let's take the physics we, we, we believe is correct. And then let's see what happens. And as we were discussing, these timescales are so long. And it, it, I kept getting reminded of the times when I was in the audience or someone was presenting results of a, of a theory. And then there would be a question from the audience and saying like, well, but can we ever measure this? Yeah. And there was like, well, I don't know, but it's kind of interesting to, yeah. to kind of look at, to explore it. And I like the, like the, the kind of sassiness here is I think that this was un- unapologetic, like yeah. in this respect, there's a like, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're not going to stick around for 10 to 30 years to check if any of this is true. But we still think, like the author still thinks this is what's going to happen because yeah. the physics is, uh, we believe how, how, how physics works and this is, this is kind of the, the outcome. Yeah, because I think everyone who does science or you know, does anything that they love does it because the questions that drive them are interesting and the answers can sometimes be even more interesting than what you thought it was. And mm-hmm. I, I think you, you kind of want to do science because it's fun. And the, yeah. the numbers and the conclusions that you're being driven to, these really exotic ideas of stars turning into black holes and then black holes merging into mm. even bigger black holes and galaxies turning into black holes. These are, these are interpretations of complex mathematical equations and theories and ideas and so on. And mm. it's, I think it's a pretty fun process, even though it might seem nonsensical from the perspective of testability perhaps, to see mm-hmm. what the ramifications of all our harder knowledge is on the grandest scale that is possible to think about, which is the scale of the universe as a whole. Yeah, and and to be honest, as, as we were kind of pointing out some of the things that uh, of this, some of these processes that that were invoked here that that should take place have since been confirmed. So we have actually detected gravitational radiation from two black holes merging. So it is 
I think always a, a worthwhile lesson to to think ahead, like be not just about what's relevant now at this particular moment, but what could be possible uh, in the future as well. Yeah, precisely. I guess the one big difference between the premise of this paper and I guess what we know now is the fact that the starting point, of course, is building on this idea that there were these claims that the universe might actually be open as mm-hmm. an, it's an open universe. And we today don't think that is the case. In fact, there is very good evidence that uh, we actually do live in a flat universe. Mm-hmm. But apart from that, you know, who cares? So yeah, that, that's certainly true that now we, we think that we do live in a flat universe uh, and not in an open universe, but we do have fairly good evidence that we live in a flat universe that will continue to expand. So in in terms of all of those branches of outcomes that that we discussed before, this this is in the context of that open universe branch that it will continue expanding forever just for a different reason. Exactly. Uh, Which is probably a story for another episode. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it also goes to show how, how sometimes like your considerations might not be correct in that context that you originally thought so, but my like nature has a way of <laughs> working uh, its Forgiving way around you. those kinds yeah. of things. Yeah. <laughs> and making you cor- uh, be correct anyway. Yeah. So the, the end state or the ultimate fate of a universe like the one we live in, which is a flat universe that is accelerating in its size due to something called dark energy, which we can, discuss at a subsequent episode, is actually identical or very close to being identical to the fate of an open universe without dark energy. So I also enjoyed, yeah, I have to just repeat it again, how, how fun it was to read a paper that kind of does away with like the small nuisances. And I really liked how uh, when you first talked about the galaxies, they're like, okay, then we can represent them as like the whole galaxy with everything it has, like all the stars, all the mm-hmm. planets. You can just say like, oh, it's a point. Yeah. So this basically does this like for the entire universe. It just like tries to simplify it, like to, the, uh, <laughs> to kind of break it down to, the, uh, to its simplest yeah. terms. And I really did enjoy like the, these uh, philosophical aspects of the, uh, of the paper that, that ends up on questioning sort of what would be the nature of time in this universe and, yeah. and what would come out of life? How, how, would, how would that be affected? I thought it was interesting how, how the author noted that our perception of time is very much tied to, to see something change. So if, we, if yeah. nothing really changes, then like he asked the question like, is there time even? Mm-hmm. And like the only really ended up being proposed answer is that the only thing that would still be changing is that the universe would continue to expand. Yeah. So that background radiation that we mentioned at the beginning would just keep getting colder and colder and like never becoming absolutely cold because there's no such thing, but just like ever so slightly, slightly colder. So I thought it was kind of interesting, like yeah. even to to think about something we now take for granted, like time, we have a, an understanding of what it is, that even that might be brought into question at, yeah. at the end of the universe. So clocks in 10 to the you know 100 years will be based on essentially the temperature of the microwave background and how yeah. that is changing. will be thermometers. <laughs> will be thermometers, exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite a, obviously we as humans won't be 
around at that stage to see all of this unfold. But in some senses, we could have very well lived in a universe where this rapid expansion, this acceleration in the size of the universe due to dark energy actually kicked off a lot sooner. And we could have found ourselves right in the midst of all of this taking place. Can you imagine, though, what, would, what it would be like if, if for some magical reason there was life in one of the few remaining planets 10 to the 100 mm-hmm. years from now? What space, so you know, if they had telescopes, what it would look like to actually look through those telescopes? Because Yeah, everything is expanding away, yeah. so it might be that nothing actually, even if there were light, yeah. it wouldn't, kind of, wouldn't ever be able to reach us. Time. So yeah. any living organisms, any intelligent life might actually think that there is no such thing as another galaxy and that we are, or they are, perhaps the only entities in the cosmos because observational astronomy or the idea of being able <laughs> to observe something in space because light reaches our telescopes or, and comes into our eyes will eventually no longer be possible because the expansion of yeah. the universe has proceeded so far that things are basically just too far for us to ever see them. So then truly that would be an island universe, like the galaxy would be its own universe. It would have no means of communication with with anything outside of itself. Exactly. And so if there were humans or some other kind of life form recording their observations of what they thought our universe was made of, it would be a very different set of texts. Uh, compared to what we have now. And if, for example, they were able to keep somehow, you know, our records from today well into the future, then they would be completely baffled by our conclusions about, you know, this, you know, bright night sky full of stars and planets and galaxies (laughs) and so on. And they would say, well, we don't see any of this. So perhaps these people that existed 10 to 100 years ago were so primitive in nature that they were imagining these <laughs> splendid, magnificent things in the sky that never existed. And of course, they have maybe no Good way reason. of knowing yeah. that it ever to believe that. Yeah, that's okay. That's, I, have, I have to admit, I, I was quite down on the prospects, both in the, in the closed universe and like in this, what, uh, what we'll end up in. But maybe we can end on, on a hopeful note, uh, uh, being sort of thankful that we are living in these times where we can see uh, other galaxies and all of these phenomena really marveling us as take place and uh, all around us. Are you saying that it's a weird coincidence that we do find ourselves living in these times where we can actually make these measurements? Or is the fact that the conditions are so appropriate that we do actually live in these times? Mm, I think that's getting way too philosophical for me. I think I'll just be thankful to be here now. (laughs) (laughs) Just be grateful that you've come. Yeah, so maybe we can leave this... uh, discussion of the anthropic argument of the anthropic Mm -hmm. principle for yet another episode (laughs) uh, at some point in the future. Well, on that somewhat haunting (laughs) uh, last thought, I guess maybe this is a good place to wrap up today's discussion. And I hope you've had fun because I know I've really enjoyed it. And I'll certainly think about my place in the grand scheme of things in a very different way from now on. Exactly. Our daily worries of, you know, not being able to go outside really pale in comparison when you think of what is going to be happening in 10 to the 100 years. Yeah. 
I'm glad I won't be around to see it. <laughs> um, any, anyway, we hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode and we hope you'll tune in again next time. And until then, goodbye and thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye.